I think having that level of sort of aftercare is really, really important with a partner, especially if you know maybe they have a history of feeling conflict or conflicting emotions when you go out because they're sad about missing out on something or missing out on that time with you. And so both of you having the opportunity to really get curious about what it is that they feel and what it is that maybe both of you can do to help each other feel better about the situation. I think guilt is completely understandable and that's something that we all feel and embrace the knowledge that you're not alone in that. Welcome to the Multi-Amory Podcast. I'm Jace. I'm Emily. And I'm Dedeker. We believe in looking to the future of relationships, not maintaining the status quo of the past. Whether you're monogamous, polyamorous, swinging, casually dating, or if you just do relationships differently, we see you and we're here for you. On this episode of the Multi-Amory Podcast, we're diving into some listener questions on topics like feeling guilty enjoying activities without your partner, common advice given to polyamorous newbies that might not be as helpful as people think, and being partially monogamous. Joining us to tackle these questions is our very special guest, Jessica Esfandiari. Jessica is a writer, speaker, and the host of the Open Late Podcast a show about open relationships and how the principles of non-monogamy can be applied to everyday life. Jessica, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Great job on the last (laughs) name. No one can do it right. And you did it perfectly. (laughs) So what's funny to me is you're also someone who ended up on the non-monogamous relationship to podcast hosting track. So You want to give us just like the story beats of that journey, of that transformation? Yeah. I mean, five years fully Mm -hmm. closeted um, and then slowly tiptoeing to open up about being open. And it took about three years of gently letting people that I know and love in on my life. And then the questions came and the questions came and the questions Mm -hmm. came and eventually I was exhausted. So I'm like, you know what? I need to put this in a much more shareable and sustainable format. And that's how the podcast was born. That's so funny because we often tell people some sort of half joking version of the same thing, right? They were like so sick of having to explain our relationships (laughs) and what they mean and how we practice it that we may (laughs) as well record it. So I know when we were creating our show, we definitely had this decision point around, do we use our real names or not? Or do we use pseudonyms? I think at the time that we were launching our show, the only other podcast out there, you know, the host used pseudonyms for very, very good reasons, right? So what was that decision like for you? You know, like you mentioned kind of coming out slowly, but surely to all these people around you, but then doing something like creating a very public resource like a podcast is, is different. Yeah, that's such a great question. No one's ever asked me. I never considered sort of going with a a pseudonym or an alter ego. I'm always the sort of person like jump and I'll Mm -hmm. figure it out later. And I think I ignored the thought of any sort of consequence or backlash to my full, you know, life being online. It felt like the only option for me to like just put myself out there authentically me. And I feel like I I have a privilege and I have a voice where I'm not in danger, my safety, my security, like my lifestyle for doing that. And I felt that that was also important because not everyone has that luxury. So many people, you know, choose to sort of stay very closed about their open relationship and for good reason a lot of the time. And so I felt like if I have that platform and I'm able to, I wanted to do it that way. Yeah, that's very similar to our decision process as well, was that realization that maybe there's some risks, but they're small enough and we're willing to to take that and to be out there because not everybody can, right? But whatever we can do to normalize that and make it, like by not using a pseudonym, trying to really drive home that idea that this is just a normal other way of doing relationships, that this isn't some thing that we're embarrassed about and so we need to hide behind that pseudonym 
And I know that's not why people do it, but it I feel like it can give that impression sometimes of that like, oh, I'm hiding this because I think it's naughty or, or deviant rather than we're like, no, 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 this is fine. This is normal. Yeah, mm. this is wholesome. Right. When you started the podcast or made that decision, were any of your partners a little worried about that prospect and the fact that maybe you might be talking about them in some way or sort of divulging the things that were going on in your life? It's so interesting. They were both so supportive. I had two full-time partners at the time, my husband and my partner, Lauren, who is now like still a life partner, but very platonic. We always, we call it, you know, I love platonic polyamory. It's my favorite kind of polyamory. And so at the time we were still very romantic and they were both like, do it, you know, but obviously if there were specific instances that I was going to speak about our relationship, we would go over anything that was going to be in the interview. And my husband's always really encouraged me to like come out and share this. Like we were closeted because of me for the mm -hmm. first five years. And the one interesting thing, though, is they've both had a harder time coming onto the podcast, whereas I'm like, mm. come on the podcast, come on the podcast. And right. they're like, mm. this is your podcast. Huh. And so I've managed to get Pasha on just twice. And, you know, he just doesn't sure. love the camera. And he also doesn't love talking about his personal life. So we have that boundary and that barrier. And Lauren, over time, has gotten much more comfortable sharing her story and now loves it. You know, she just oh, asked wow. me the other day, she's like, I think I need to come back on because we have so many updates in her life. So mm. it's been it's been interesting. I think it's been a growth journey for all of us. And they've certainly grown when they've come on as guests and they love that. But they also sure. love their privacy. Sure. They're like, this is your show. <laughs> well, so let's go back yeah. to the platonic polyamory thing. So I know that... This is something that maybe we've covered, maybe our audience could get into, but I just want to maybe play the devil's advocate and just be like, what do you mean platonic polyamory? Isn't that just normal garden variety <laughs> friendship? It can be. I mean, I don't kiss all of my friends on the mouth or sleep in bed with them and cuddle them and share a calendar with them. Um, so that's where I sort of bleed it into the actual polyamory. And I feel very much in love. You know, where mm. it's not just like a a friendship love. It's like a deep love of that person. So, I mean, but I would I think I would love to explore the topic more. And it's something that I want to actually research. And I just started to scratch the surface of it. I'm curious if any of you have like gone down this road of platonic polyamory and thinking about what it means and, you know, the the relationship that the three of you even have beyond, you know, being in a romantic relationship as three. Yeah, it's definitely something that we've talked about on the show a little bit and with each other. We did an episode a while back about uh, queer platonic relationships and kind of other things kind of on that platonic spectrum. And I think there's a lot that's related there, but it gets into that funny territory of how much is this trying to find a label to describe the thing I'm doing versus just, I've got one that's good enough, I'll just go with that, or using a different one in different contexts, right? That if you're speaking to people who get it, saying platonic polyamory maybe carries that connotation of, okay, so there's something maybe more intentional, more intertwined here than we would normally associate with a friend. Mm -hmm. uh, but that, you know, if you're in another group, you might just say friend because it's not worth trying to explain it all. Mm. Right. To go that in depth with, yeah, the right. exact type of but, relationship. Yeah, but I love you highlighting mm -hmm. there's something beyond, right? Because, I mean, the three of us haven't been in like a romantic or sexual relationship together in like eight years, nine years at this point. Mm -hmm. But I always make the joke to people, again, half joking, that it's like we're still this really emotionally entangled triad co-parenting a little podcast baby and also being business partners at the same time. Because yes, this thing where, you know, I'm in a romantic relationship with Jace and I'm not in a quote unquote romantic relationship with Emily, but Emily's like a beneficiary on all of my like retirement accounts and is in my will and stuff like that. And so that goes beyond what we normally right. call quote unquote just friends or 
platonic like it's like yeah it's like we're getting into that life partnership chosen family where again it it goes beyond just is it monogamous is it non-monogamous is it romantic is it platonic and yeah i think maybe some more nuanced interesting ways of looking at human connection that doesn't really fit all the boxes that most of us have been raised with totally yeah and that's exactly how i feel it's like oh it goes beyond because there's so much entanglement um, you know, it's funny, like Lauren is living in our home at the moment. Oh, and wow. it was like my dream while we were actually dating. It never happened. And I, I've been making the joke, half joke, that it took us not being in a romantic <laughs> relationship to get her to <laughs> live with, <laughs> with him. Yeah. I wanted to pivot a little bit and discuss a, a talk that you teased to us. And it's titled, Your Partner's Not Your Superhero. That's a really interesting title, and it initially like puts just so many different thoughts in my head about what that means, and people who sort of put their partners up on a pedestal. Can, can you talk about what you mean by that and what that talk looks like? Yeah, I love that talk. It was sort of the first thing I ever wrote to mm. kind of give a public talk about relationships. I was coaching for a while. I was just starting to come out about being in a in an open relationship but not everyone knew and i wrote this talk very heavy in the perspective of i think principles of non-monogamy but without ever mentioning non-monogamy and gave it to a group of you know regular folks in regular traditional relationships and it's really about how our society sells us on the idea of the one from the day that you're born and you're watching Disney movies and you're looking for this person to complete you. Or especially if you're, you know, a little girl identifying human, someone to save you even. And so we grow up with this ideal of that's what we're looking for and we're not whole and complete until we like find that person. And then what happens is so many people find that person and then there's like the goal of getting married or having children and whatever the mononormativity is, but without Mm -hmm. using words like mononormativity, Mm because this was for everyone. You have some benchmarkers and usually complete them. And and then it's like, and then what? Mm -hmm. You know? So it was all about looking at relationships. Um, And I'm an Aquarius too. So community is like, the most important thing in my life, looking at relationships with the idea of this should be a vehicle for growth, not something to like check the box and I made it, I can rest, but like where are we going together? And sort of the the thing to think about instead of focusing on the one is being the one. How can I be the best partner and show up in the way that I can, not only for my partner, but for my community as a whole and complete person on my own. And then I can add in every space that I'm in. And it's been s- such a long time since I've like actually given this talk. So I'm going a bit out of order. But the three principles that I sort of brought up were to make sure that you have individual goals and couple goals mm. so that even if you are paired or partnered, you are moving towards something together always to keep that discovery mode alive. And to have something together so you're constantly having newness in that relationship. So individual goals and couple goals, being the one, and then letting yourself fall in love with community, whether that be family members, chosen family, friends, hobbies, not to reserve your love for one person. It's like that was the sort of final piece. It's when we reserve our love for one, we're sort of doomed to put a ton of pressure on our partner and a ton of pressure on ourselves. Um, So how can we find like loving, connected, reciprocal relationships with many people so that you can ultimately use all the sides of your personality? Because if you're only like engaging deeply and lovingly with one, you're like only accessing the parts of you that that person can bring out, which is Mm -hmm. actually kind of limited. And Mm -hmm. so after all that, hopefully you're a well-rounded whole ass person. (laughs) Your partner can like relax because there's not all this pressure, obviously, to fulfill all of your needs, which is, I think, what the four of us probably spend all day talking about all the time. Like <laughs> one one person just 
really can't fill, fulfill all of our needs, nor should they. Yeah. I love that. And it's, it's so cool to hear you describing that because it echoes a lot of things that we've talked about on this show that we talked to guests about, but you have a slightly different way of explaining it and approaching it. And I, and I love that there are becoming more and more resources out there for however someone thinks, whatever they relate to, whatever type of language works for them, that there's more of these resources teaching that kind of thing of mm -hmm. that, that that traditional idea of someone completing you is actually really limiting if you're thinking mm -hmm. of that that's the only place I can express myself anymore is with this one person. Yeah, thank you. I know it's like a 35 minute talk and I think I I yeah, I turned it into an episode. So if anyone's curious, they can go check it out. But I go on a whole rant about like how sex in the city like ruined oh, me. Like, yeah. Oh, no. you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, no, I love yeah, it. I, I watched it. all of it which too I, many I times. I still love the show. Yeah. 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 Which <laughs> I was, I'll still watch the show any day of the week. But like, yeah, I think to piggyback off what Jace was saying, we always appreciate new ways of repackaging some of these concepts to be even more palatable and more palatable and more understandable and more accessible to someone who's not like super deep down the relationship anarchy rabbit hole, right? Just like help move the needle yeah. against the tide of so many years of just really not great relationship advice and really not great relationship role models. It's interesting you bring up Sex in the City because it feels like maybe consciously we've abandoned the whole, oh, women aren't princesses that need saving. We're not locked in a tower that need a man to come along and just fix everything. We're independent and we have our own careers and we have sex and we enjoy sex and things like that. But what I've seen that still produce is less of this very traditional, oh, I definitely need a man to come save me. But there's, I, I still, you know, when I talk to my girlfriends, especially my like more monogamously dating girlfriends, there's still this sense of, sure, no, I don't need a man to completely save me, but I, but I do need someone who's going to come along and at least save me from all these little dissatisfactions and frustrations that I have, I still have this sense that if I just find that person, all these little inconveniences of life and the doldrums and the boredom or the frustrations or the irritations, like those will get whisked away by this person, which is sort of the same message, but just packaged a little bit differently. Yeah, I completely agree. And that's actually why I, I think the point about being the one is so important for people to really understand because when you allow yourself to have all those little points of like frustration and contention in your life, that's lowering sort of your, like the way I think about it, lowers your vibration and you're not mastering your emotions in your life. And then you're actually going to attract someone at that level. You're not actually going to attract the sort of the person that you're looking for that's like going to elevate you out of that. You're just going to attract the same kind of person who's also annoyed with little things in life who's looking for sort of someone else to smooth all that over. And if you just focus on how can I best prepare myself to be radiating and finding joy and bliss and ease or whatever, flow, happiness in my own life, then without, I think, even searching for it, you start to just attract and collect those people. And it doesn't have to just be one person. It's like, yeah. So I like I love that point because I see it all the time still with friends and even family and it doesn't have to be that way. So people are focused on like an outside fix rather than yeah. an inside fix. So yeah. you're also on this journey of soon to be polyamorous parenting, which is a topic that <laughs> many people are, are interested in. I'm so glad we're starting to see more people being open about their journeys as parents or raising kids with multiple partners or even just being in an open marriage while they still have kids. And so you're here on the cusp of that. And I just want to know where you're at. What are you doing to prepare for that? I don't know how I would prepare for that. Like, like what are you anticipating? Oh, my gosh. I feel <laughs> so unprepared. Mm -hmm. Um, I like for people who are only listening, not watching it, watching, I have like a perma smile that I cannot erase because we are expecting twins and it's like the craziest thing ever. You know, people ask us all the time, like, oh, well, you're going to not be open anymore, right? Like, mm -hmm. as if it's wow. just like Wow, they go there yeah, immediately. People, That's incredible. 
Yeah, especially people with kids because they're like, mm. well, you're not going to have the time or the energy. And it's like, well, absolutely, mm -hmm. that's probably true. And I doubt that when our kids are babies, we'll take very much time away from parenting, especially because there's two. But for us, especially for me, I can't really speak for my husband. I think he's he is a bit less polyamorous than I am, which I think is cool to note because people think you have to like match up equally and you really don't. Um, I think he also doesn't fully want to let himself because his priorities are different. And I'm like, <laughs> I could love easily. Like, it's just so easy for me. And he's like, that's a lot of responsibility. Um, and so for me, polyamory isn't something I can turn off. It's like who I am. It's like who I am at my core. And so the answer is like, no, we're not going to stop being who we are. We might have less interactions with new people, but we have, you know, people in our community that we've like known or that, you know, we might engage with or date or just have like a great meetup with every once in a while. And I think when we have time, we'll still continue that. That's like our preparation, our understanding. And then the other thing that we're doing, and we just actually did this last week, and I was sharing with you guys before we started, we joined a social club, which I can't talk too much about. I was chatting with them and um, probably chat a bit more about them eventually and share the name of this group. But they're only focused on socializing and not dating so that People who are open at whatever stage of open or type of relationship, however you identify, can just come together and create community face-to-face -face at these dinner meetups. And we were like, you know what? Let's do this now. We have six months because we've never really done that. We've not made community in polyamory like a really big focus or a priority in our lives. We've done a lot more like vacation and staying at this resort and maybe going to a party every now and then, and then more like long-term relationship with like this one woman for, you know, three to four years and then a guy for five years. And so we really didn't focus on creating a big community of people to tap into as friends, maybe as lovers or just, you know, something in between. So now we're like, let's meet other mm -hmm. poly people who have kids. Um, nice. So that's been the journey and we're just at the beginning of that. And this dinner was really sweet and great. We hosted it at our house. There were five other couples and some singles. And, you know, I think if we can lay a solid foundation now, maybe we'll have some fun date nights in our future, but also not putting a ton of pressure on it. So that's sort of where we are with the whole idea of it. Yeah. I mean, and that yeah. seems like a good practice regardless of whether you're non-monogamous or monogamous but you know yeah if you're thinking about creating your little biological family it's also good to be thinking about chosen family and community that holds you within that which is not something we're always encouraged to do necessarily but I think it's time for us to switch gears and to start diving into some of our listener questions for this week we do have our disclaimer is always that we've spent a lot of time, as you all know, studying healthy relationship communication, but we're not mind readers. Our advice is based solely on the limited information that we have. So please take everything that we say with a grain of salt. Every situation is unique, and we encourage you to use your own judgment and seek professional help if needed. Ultimately, you are the only true expert on your own life and feelings, and your decisions are your own. So with all of that said, let's get started and dive into these questions for this week. So the first question we have, do you have any advice for not feeling bad about enjoying something without your partner, especially when they are feeling bad and you feel partially responsible for their happiness? So I'm going to pile on to this question with my own experience, which is I think that I've struggled with this a ton, particularly in having a long history of being in like long distance relationships. You know, there were so many years where I was traveling between two different countries and spending long clips of time with different partners throughout the year. And again, even if a partner wasn't feeling upset directly because of the fun time that I'm having elsewhere, I still had a lot of feelings of guilt that would still come up, right? That I'm going out on this great date or to this music festival or just having generally a good time without my other partner. So that's all to say, I don't have an answer for this. I'm hoping the rest of y'all can answer it for my sake and the sake of the question asker. 
I can sort of Please. tackle this one yeah. first. Well, I have some thoughts. I have some thoughts. And also, like, I really identify with you too, Dedeker. I, in my relationship, I have also been the one to be like, oh, man, this is really tough. I find that I can meet people a bit more easily. People want to date me even after they find out that I'm married. It's not always the same for my husband. And so over the years, I've had a little fair share of that. And I think it's stopped me at times from going out as much as maybe I could have because I was like, but I don't want to leave him at home. Even though he was mm. like, no, go, I'm fine. This is my stuff and I'm going to work through it. Mm. And I'm like, mm, I'm just going to stay home and watch Netflix with you. So the one of the things that helped me shift out of this is when I would go out, remembering that I'm already choosing to do it. So it's going to do both of us a, a disservice if I can't be present and enjoy it. And ultimately, even if Pasha misses me or you know, is having some kind of discomfort, he's still at the end of the day, like wants me to enjoy it. So I have to not project what I'm, that I'm sad, that he's sad onto it and make it worse. And so I think that sort of workaround helped me really still be able to enjoy the experiences that I was in. And then the other thing that helps too is just always addressing that. Like, I'm a huge fan of, like, let's always address the elephant in the room and over-communicate. And your book on communication is key. And so creating, I think, important touch points where we can talk about, you know, whether it's his feelings or my feelings before and after the date in, like, a contained way. Like, okay, let's, you know, chat about if you are uncomfortable, how you're supporting yourself while I'm away. Do you want me to be a part of that in any way? Is there anything I can do? So we can sort of have a clean understanding of what each other's roles are in that process. And then I can be like, okay, I've done my part. And now I can go out and relax knowing that he's supported and taken care of. Or when I come back from a date or a trip or something like that. Yeah, I, yeah. I love that. I think having that level of sort of aftercare, as it were, is really, really important with a partner, especially if you know maybe they have a history of feeling conflict or conflicting emotions when you go out because they're sad about missing out on something or missing out on that time with you. And so both of you having the opportunity to really get curious about what it is that they feel and what it is that maybe both of you can do to help each other feel better about the situation. I think guilt is completely understandable and that's something that we all feel. And embrace the knowledge that you're not alone in that. <laughs> and all of us have had that in a variety of times in our relationships. So yeah, no, I love that. Just be overabundant in your communication, I think is a huge priority. Yeah. This one's interesting too, because it's not exclusive to non-monogamy either, right? This Absolutely. is one that, you know, there was actually something just this last week or so that Dedeker and I talked about that was something about my job that was like a good thing, but I was worried that she would be jealous of it. That's not oh. what you said. You well, said I didn't so tell you I, because I thought you'd be mad at me <laughs> is the phrase that you said. <laughs> well, mad because you were jealous of it. That was the the idea. But, you know, just like little things like that can come up. And this, you know, it wasn't wasn't a huge deal and we did talk about it. Um, but I did find myself kind of avoiding that because of that feeling of guilt. And that had nothing to do with dating anyone else because uh, I'm not dating anyone else at the moment. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it was just that that thing can come up in a lot of different ways. It can come up with our friends as well, our family members. Yeah, I'm like jealous that. of you two going on vacation oh, soon. Yeah, I'd be jealous of me too. I'm sorry, that's oh, one. Yes. I don't have anything. To yeah, well, okay, but actually, this is a good object lesson. This is yeah. a great object lesson because... Okay. okay. When you were speaking, Jess, I was putting myself, you know, trying to recall times when I've been on the other side of this, right? Where a partner of mine is going off to do something fun, whether it's with another partner or not, and I'm in a bad mood or I'm going through a rough time or whatever. I know something that has really helped me has, of course, been communicating about it with my partner. But if I have a sense that there's a level of choice about how I interact with the good time they're having. So for instance, being asked, okay, I'm about to go on this mm -hmm. fun weekend trip with another partner. 
do you want like pictures and updates or do you want me to just kind of leave all that out and then we can talk about it when I get back, right? And for me, I appreciate having the choice because even if I'm 100% okay with my partner taking this weekend trip, if I'm going through a rough time or tackling something stressful, maybe I don't want pictures of how beautiful the beach looks at that moment, right? Maybe you can tell me (laughs) afterwards how beautiful the beach was Um, or maybe I want to feel included. Maybe it's something about not wanting to feel lonely and the idea that I can get those updates and have a commentary about like, oh, wow, the beach. Oh, wow, that drink you're having. Maybe that helps me feel more included. So for you, Emily, what do you think would be helpful while Jason and I are on vacation no, next week? I want to see <laughs> and I want to, yes, I want to live vicariously through you while I'm, you know, <laughs> editing our podcast or sending off some books to people or, you know, (laughs) working at Sun Cafe. Yes, I I would like to to wish that I were there and feel just a tad bit like I was there sitting next Mm -hmm. to you on the beach drinking a pina colada. Can we also be affirming just how hard you're working during that time? Will that help? I mean, yes. How how hard I do always. always. Yes. Yes. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. I think one one last thing I wanted to throw in here is um, something that comes up when, especially when you're dating someone new and there's kind of that excitement and new relationship energy from from going on those dates, that there can be this sort of like giddiness and excitement afterward that depending on how your partner is feeling and how much the two of you like to talk about all those details might be something that that they don't want to hear about all that, you know, Twitter pated feeling. And so, you know, I've, I've heard all sorts of different suggestions for how to handle this, whether it's, you know, setting some time to debrief with your partner or, uh, but the one that I actually like the most is kind of build into your schedule, some decompression time for yourself, whether that's just like sitting in the car for an hour before you come back home or if you don't live together with your partner, this is this is easier. But if you do live together, then it's, you know, maybe getting home and taking a walk first or having someone else that you can call, like a best friend or your mom or, you know, somebody to kind of get some of that that jitteriness out so that then you can show up a little more when you come home. If if that's what your relationship needs for some people, they're like, no, give me all the juicy details. I want to hear about it. Uh, but just to throw that out there as an option, I think, doesn't occur to a lot of people. Mm, that's such a good option. Okay, we've got three more really exciting questions that I want to get to. But first, we're going to take a quick break to talk about how you can support this show. If this is content that you appreciate and you like the fact that we're able to put this out there into the world for everybody for free, the best way that you can support that is by taking a moment to check out our sponsors. If any are interesting to you, go check them out. But just listening to it even does a lot to help our show and helps us get the support we need so that we can give you the support you need. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. For a long time now, we've been fans of adamandeve.com for getting sex toys or lingerie or accessories, things like that. It's just a fantastic resource with a huge selection and now, not only do we have a fantastic offer, but we also have a promo code that will work on adammail.com and evestoys.com, which are their site specifically for LGBTQ audiences. And our code is fantastic. It's 50% off of almost any item in the store and free discreet shipping when you use our code MULTI. Yes, we love adamandeve.com and have for years. They are our oldest and longest sponsor, and they just keep on giving great gifts to us and to our listeners. You can bring more pleasure and satisfaction into your bedroom by going to adamandeve.com, adammail.com, or evestoys.com and select any one item. It can be, you know, an adventurous new toy or anything you desire, something fun, something sexy, whatever sounds good. 
So just enter offer code MULTI at checkout and you'll get 50% off almost any item plus free shipping. That's MULTI, M-U-L-T-I at adamandeve.com, adammail.com or evestoys.com. This is an exclusive offer that is specific to this podcast and it's better than any offer that is currently available on their site. So again, use code MULTI to get you not just the 50% discount, but also the 100% free shipping. Code M-U-L-T-I. And we're back. Okay, the next question. What advice or cautions would you give for established and practicing poly people about dating newbie poly people? So what advice or cautions to people who are more experienced polyamorous people if they're going to date someone who's new So. These, this question comes with actually quite a lot of extra information attached to it. This spawned even like maybe even a tiny little tangential thread in our Discord server that this is attached to the fact that some people felt frustrated by this really common advice given to more established non-monogamous folks, basically just about not dating newbies at all, you know, really warning them away. Or, you know, if someone's posting, asking for advice, and then if the community finds out, oh, someone's, this person you're dating is brand new to non-monogamy, it's not going to work. You know, just run now, just get away now, right? And I really loved that there was, you know, one of our patrons in the Discord was really insightful. And they said that, you know, there can be this catch-22 of advice, especially that's directed to non-monogamous folks about, and to newbies about like, hey, you shouldn't be trying to date experienced poly people until you have more experience dating poly people. You know, like this catch-22, right? And I think we've run into this before where some, you know, people have expressed frustration around, well, I don't want to make someone into my guinea pig, but also how do you get experience and get more comfortable relating in this way without having someone to relate to, right? So that's sort of the background and the context around this question. Do y'all have any thoughts about that? I mean, we've all been newbie polyamorous people before, like every single one of us, and we all had to start somewhere. So to me, I think there is the potential for a limiting sort of ideal that I have to only date people who are super established. Or I've even heard like I have to only date people who are already in a primary relationship, for instance. And, you know, that's fine, whatever it is that you want. But In terms of this, I've definitely dated people who don't know very much about polyamory and they end up being really interested in it and really excited about it and curious and want to know more and want to read things and want to learn. And we have talked in recent episodes about the potential power dynamic at play there and that you have to be really cautious and careful of that. And I think that that is something we all should be aware of what kind of power dynamics are at play in all of our relationships. But I wouldn't want to limit myself if I were in a position to date non-monogamously again, which I'm currently not. But I I would think that there are potential great relationships out there with people who are just starting out in this. Yeah, it's there's. I feel like there's two parts I want to answer about it. So one is that advice about if you're an established poly person dating someone who's new to it is is that I think first is it's worth thinking about, you know, can I do that? Do I do I have the energy for that? I mean, one, dating people that are new to polyamory opens up a lot more people to date, which is often a great thing. Like that's often you're like, hey, you know what? I would love some new people and not just these same, you know, 10 poly people in my community. I already know. Uh, <laughs> it opens up those options. It's great, but it does sometimes take a little bit more energy or sometimes can be a little bit more challenging when you run into some of those newbie challenges. But I kind of feel like there's a little bit of this, uh, what's, I don't know, there's a term for it, but it's like when you're just starting out, you're the one who's likely to run into that conditioning that you have, like all the social conditioning about being jealous or possessive or, or these things that's hard to unlearn. And then you get to this point where you're a little bit past that. And I think that's where people go, I don't want to date any newbies because I don't want to deal with that shit. Hmm. But then I feel like once you get more experienced again to where you're more solidly comfortable, then you can date those Hmm. newbies again because you're kind of able to weather a little bit of the storm if they have some of those struggles because you're far enough past it. 
But I almost wonder if some of this advice comes from the people that are just barely past that themselves. And so they're like, Ack, no, get away. I can't go back there. You know, I so much of what you both shared, Emily and Jace, I agree with. And it it kind of reminds me, right? There's like no right way to do relationships. There's your way at the point in time that you are at, the space you're at on your journey. Because I've been all of those places. I've been like the newbie dating other newbies, dating really experienced, you know, people, and then moving into a dynamic of a full-time like triad with someone who had never experienced non-monogamy, you know, as I was about five years in, had my footing. And then I got to a place where I was like, after dating a few more newbies, like, this is just way too much. I'm mm-hmm. teaching. Mm-hmm. I don't want to mm-hmm. be teaching. <laughs> this mm. is exhausting. So I've like run the gamut as well. And I've been guilty of saying like, I'm staying away from new people because I just don't have the time or energy. And I think in my relationship right now, because of like what I'm looking for um, and protecting my energy a lot about to become a new mama, that's the lane that I'm in unless I want to have a fun one night stand. And then I'm, you know, then it doesn't matter, you know, and then it's like, but, you know, communicating that that's all I'm looking for and I'm not going to be your, you know, poly trainer. So I think that you're both, you know, everything that you shared is so correct. And I think it's comes down to checking in with where you are at that stage in your evolution in your relationship and your sexuality and seeing what you have capacity for and what are your intentions. And that will sort of help guide where you land on all of that. Yeah, very well said. It seems like there's a balance between, you know, protecting your energy and your capacity, as you put it, like that's on one end of the spectrum. And then on the other end of the spectrum is maybe the gatekeeping or being more closed minded or closed off. Right. And so it is figuring that out. I know I've had wonderful relationships in the past where I think if I was more closed off to them having questions, not being sure, having some jealousy right at the gate, dealing with that social conditioning, that if I was more closed off, I would have completely abandoned that relationship and not had a really wonderful relationship. And then also there have been other times where I'm just like, no, I don't have time for this shit. Like, You know, I want someone who already knows all the lingo and the shorthand, you know, doesn't mean that they're going to be perfect at it or like we're not going to run into any conflict or drama, but I just want to be able to yeah, jump past that point. So, yeah, I think it's it's that balance. Yeah, I think it's definitely worth remembering the fact that just because someone's done it a long time doesn't necessarily mean they're any good at it. (laughs) Exactly. Or that they're any good with you. Right. Could they could be perfectly fine with somebody else. But with you, you just bring up all all of each other's insecurities or baggage or whatever. That's also possible. Something I did want to acknowledge about this question asker's question is they gave an example about the way this is discussed in online communities and probably in in in-person communities as well. Uh, But the idea that when someone's coming for advice in a community, and in this situation, they said it was someone who was an established poly person who was dating someone who was new to polyamory, and there was a little bit of friction or drama with their metamor, so with that new person's other partner. And basically, everybody said, get out, it'll never work, it's a disaster, (laughs) get get out. And when I see that, I'm like, I totally get where everybody's coming from, and maybe I would have a voice shouting that in my head, because I think if you've been doing it for a while, you've been in some kind of situation where that has been bad, and it sucked and it and it hasn't gotten better. But I do think it's worth all of us reminding ourselves that, yeah, but we also had times where we did get through it because that's how we ended up here. And, you know, to kind of, I guess, give people the benefit of the doubt to work through their own stuff and to figure out their own stuff while at the same time not trying to do it all for them, like kind of letting them have that journey on their own and be there to support them, but also knowing that you don't have to make that change for them. And if they just can't get there, that's also okay to let that one go and give them some time. Because I've dated people where it didn't work out for us. And then I find out years later that now they're happily polyamorous with other people. And I'm like, okay, I guess I introduced them to it, even though they weren't there yet. They weren't ready to think about that yet. Yeah, I think having that 
maybe personal boundary of I am so excited to date you, but I'm not really going to choose to go out and be the person who teaches you everything or tells you exactly what it is that you need to do, that that's a personal boundary that I'm putting in place for myself, that if you want to learn more, that's on you, the onus is on you, and you've got to go be the one to look up all the things and listen to all the podcasts and read all the books and stuff like that. So should we move on to the next question? Number three. Is it possible for a monogamous person to somehow fool themselves into believing they are open to polyamory? Is it possible to fool oneself for a really long time, or is that just imposter syndrome? I love the idea of really long-term fooling oneself. I mean, I've probably been there. I mean, like cognitive dissonance, (laughs) sure, you can fool yourself into believing a lot of things. I'm going to assume, again, this is kind of filling in some backstory. We don't have a ton of backstory on this question, but I'm going to assume based on stuff I've heard from clients or from friends that this may come from, oof, I seem to keep feeling jealousy or keep running into frustrations with dating or frustrations with finding partners. Like there's some piece of non-monogamy or non-traditional relationship that feels like it's not working for me, am I actually just a monogamous person and I'm in denial, right? Is this actually not the right fit for me? I'm going to assume that that this is based on some sort of friction in their actual life as opposed to this being just a philosophical question. Initially, when I look at this, I think about the times in my life where I've had really a lot more jealousy or a lot more worry about the state of my relationship. And it tended to happen when there was a lot of friction or a lot of time of like unrest or unease. And that was when I didn't feel maybe at my best or felt like the relationship was at its best. And therefore, I was like, well, maybe I just can't do polyamory or maybe I'm just not cut out for this or or my partner may have said something similar. And so I do wonder if, especially if you're in more of a primary relationship where perhaps you're nesting or something along those lines or you opened up with a partner, if the relationship is sort of on the rocks in any way, I feel like there is that potential more for someone being like, maybe I just can't handle this because your nervous system is constantly under attack or constantly feeling as though I just simply can't handle this. So I, I do think if there is a way to help get yourself in the relationship in a place that's much more at ease or much less under duress, then maybe the feelings might be different for you over time. Yeah, it's funny because the moments when I've had non-monogamy imposter syndrome, for me, it rarely shows up as, oh, shoot, what if I'm actually secretly monogamous this whole time? It's more of, oh, shoot, what if I'm just not very good at this? Or, oh, shoot, what if there's a lot more personal work to do than I realized? Oh, shoot, maybe I've been neglecting something about my relationship or something about my needs, which doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel any better than if I was like, oh, maybe I'm monogamous or whatever. But um, I often think about, and I think that this was in Rachel Krantz's book when she was interviewing a Buddhist monk about non-monogamy and his take on non-monogamy and different relationship practices and things like that. And I think that what he said was something along the lines of just asking yourself, is the intention and the effort matching the results, right? So If my intention in being open to non-monogamy is, let's say it's more sexual variety or it's to explore more parts of myself or it's to have a fuller life or whatever, and maybe sometimes it's hard, maybe I have areas where I experience jealousy or insecurity or things like that, but I'm still getting that result of the thing that I wanted with my intention, I think that's different than okay, I'm open to non-monogamy and and I have all these intentions, but I'm not getting any of that. And it's all just a drag 100% of the time. That might be a little bit of a different answer. I don't know if that automatically means you're not cut out for this or you're a secret imposter monogamous person or things like that. But I do think it's just a different data to make a different decision based on. I'd love to to jump in on the second part of this, that is it possible to fool oneself for a really long time? Or is that just imposter syndrome? And it reminds me a little bit about what we've talked about pretty much any time we've done an episode about jealousy. 
where we talk about all these ways of handling jealousy, thinking about it differently, breaking it apart into like, what are you really feeling that you're calling jealousy, all of that. But then we usually at some point take a little pause and a step back and say, but also it's worth realizing that jealousy is potentially trying to tell you something that maybe you're feeling a lot of jealousy because something's not right. Like There might actually be a reason for you having these feelings. And so as much as a, a bummer as this might be, I do think there's something to think about there in terms of that, like, am I fooling myself for a long time? Is Has this been in the same relationship the whole time? And is there something in that relationship that doesn't feel secure or safe? Because maybe there is something there that's off. That doesn't necessarily mean like, oh, this is a bad person, they're being shady, but maybe it means something about the way you're doing this or the way that they're communicating about it or the way that you're communicating about it, that something there isn't right. And just kind of powering through is another one of those kind of problematic types of advice that we see online a lot when someone's new and they're having some kind of jealousy or some sort of struggle that everyone's like, oh yeah, just figure out how to spiritually bypass it and and ignore it and you know eventually it'll go away and while sometimes that's true a lot of times it is unlearning there are times where no actually there's something valid here that should get addressed so i just want to bring that up too to this question that that you know all the things that have been said valid but also take a look at that and maybe there is something that needs to be fixed here so speaking of being monogamous or being secretly monogamous. This last question, I think, is really interesting. So it's a little bit long because I also had to attach a Wikipedia article to it. So just bear with me. <laughs> this is the question. I'm no longer feeling comfortable calling myself ethically non-monogamous. Don't get me wrong. I love the ethical bit, but I just don't feel non-monogamous is the right term. It started about a year ago when I read, of all things, the Wikipedia page on monogamy. It was then I realized how little I understood all the types of monogamy there is and how confusing it's been for me when someone expects, say, social monogamy, but still are dating non-monogamously. Or in my case, I'm sexually monogamous, but not socially monogamous. What term do you, any of you use when you're only partially non-monogamous? So here's where I attach the whole Wikipedia article on monogamy. I'm just going to give you the highlights, <laughs> just the highlights reel, but... It actually is a really interesting Wikipedia article. Would highly suggest that you go and uh, read this. But essentially, it boils down into four different types of monogamy that can be a little bit different depending on context. So they refer to marital monogamy, which is just referring to marriage between only two people. They refer to social monogamy, which is specifically about two people choosing to live together and cooperate in, and this is the way they put it, cooperating and acquiring basic resources such as shelter, food, and money. Uh, sexual monogamy, which again refers to two partners who are choosing to remain sexually exclusive with each other, not having any outside sex partners. And then genetic monogamy, which refers to sexually monogamous relationships with genetic evidence of paternity. This feels like something we would only see in like lab rats or something what? like that. That one threw me off a little bit. Yeah, I think that one's less relevant for any sort of normal human discussion. I think that's okay. more of a science, like, scientific. It's like, for, like they're Targaryens <laughs> or something. Like what? Yeah, okay. I got the impression it's more like we see this animal being sexually monogamous, and we've also done the DNA assert, tests yes. to assert yes, they actually are. Got I think it. that's got where it. this okay. comes from. So maybe we can leave that one out. So we've just got marital monogamy, social monogamy, and sexual monogamy are the three there. I do think it's worth that a little bit later in the article, it then breaks marital monogamy into two subsections, one that they call classical monogamy, which is a single relationship between two people who marry each other as virgins, remain sexually exclusive their entire lives, and then when one of them dies, the other is celibate for the rest of their life. Dang. So like the true monogamy, right? That that's it, <laughs> just the one. And then serial monogamy, which is marriage with only one person at a time, but potentially several of those over their lifetime. And I guess you could probably break down social monogamy or sexual monogamy into the same categories, right? it could right? be serial over time. I guess I would toss onto this pile as well the way that I've heard some people in the swinging community or the lifestyle community describe their relationship as being emotionally monogamous, 
but not sexually monogamous. I guess maybe that would fall under social monogamy sure. in that case, perhaps. Yeah. I feel like, yeah, yeah, that'd be social monogamy yeah. here, I think. So what do you think? Does any is okay? Wait. So what was the question? It was like, <laughs> what term do any of you use when you mm-hmm. are only partially non-monogamous? Like the classic right. Dan Savage, I think monogamish is what I thought of immediately. Which I guess in his case would be marital monogamy, but not sexual monogamy. Yeah, yeah, would be how his situation works. Yeah, huh. and that's what I use. Oh, okay. I mean, well. That's what I would use to describe that. But actually, that's not what I use for because I I guess in a way I have marital monogamy. I in this home that I bought with my husband, we're having children together, acquiring money. Yeah. And for the most part in our relationship, in some ways, like we present very we're like this well not hetero couple, he's hetero, but, you know, in our community, we're very like, people might see us and still think we're monogamous Mm -hmm. if they don't know us well. But to just for myself, I still, you know, to say that we're poly, but I guess if I were answering this question, I would say monogamish is the only term I would Mm -hmm. think of to Mm -hmm. use. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I, I guess so up until quite recently, I had, you know, for a long time, you know, two partners who were living in different countries. They were both long-term relationships. And then one of my partners and I broke up at the beginning of last year. And then what followed was this year. I was going to say a weird year, but it was a great year, honestly. It was a beautiful year where Jason and I were like, quote unquote, de facto monogamous in the sense that kind of just through circumstances, because Jason had also gone through a breakup, like right at the beginning or right before the pandemic. You know, and then obviously right when I had gone through the breakup, I wasn't interested in diving into dating anyone new or anything like that. And so we had this weird time of like, I guess we're technically monogamous. We don't feel that way, but that's not right. But I wouldn't tell someone that we're monogamous necessarily. So I don't know. That's what it makes me think of where I guess there was like the year of like the fairly social and technical, technically monogamous time in our lives but it still doesn't quite feel like it matches up with with what was going on in our hearts i would say so a lot of people have disliked the ethical non-monogamous label and a lot of people prefer the consensual non-monogamous label so can we talk about that for a minute because that's not exactly what this person is saying either but it is interesting to discuss the use of language here and what somebody feels more or less comfortable using. Because I know some people don't even want to use the word polyamorous anymore because there are potential negative connotations that go with that and how they are perceived by other people. So, yeah, I mean, what what do you all think about those different words? These are the kinds of things I, I lay in bed for hours <laughs> thinking about. Of course. Do you actually? <laughs> Actually, probably not laying in bed, but like if I'm out on a walk or if I'm just kind of sitting and spacing out, I often (laughs) think about these sorts of questions. Yeah, it's interesting that this question asker says specifically, I love the ethical bit, almost clarifying like that's not my issue here. But yeah, but some people that is weird. And I kind of get it because to label it as as ethical is sort of putting a whole lot of stuff onto it. And it's kind of like, yeah, some people can do non-monogamy where everyone agrees to it, and maybe it's still not ethical all the time, but that's still a very different thing from cheating. And I actually do prefer the term consensual non-monogamy because it's at least sticking to the facts. It's like, you know, and I know, and we agree to it, and then this other person knows and they agree to it, and kind of, it emphasizes more that we know and we've agreed to this, whether we do a shitty job or not or treat each other well is kind of a separate thing, just like monogamy isn't inherently ethical either. Um, so I, I do kind of get that that issue. But I think the other one worth noting is that the bummer about non-monogamy as a term, even though we use it all the time, is that it's just defining a thing by what it's not. And that, as far as definitions go, you know, your, your teacher in high school or whatever probably would have given you some (laughs) bad marks for just defining a thing by what it's not right 
But it's a hard one to define any other way. Yeah, Jess, sure. do you have any like evolution of which terms you adopted for yourself? Because I've heard you say open a few times too, which is, again, something <laughs> else entirely, maybe, or just within the same sphere. Yeah, it's so interesting. A little bit of my nature is like, oh, I don't like labels. And so rather than stick to one, I just use a bunch of different ones, which there you go. is not probably helpful. Um, similar to you, Jace, I, I think I saw Dr. Jana at one point talk about the difference between ENM and CNM. And it kind of struck me because I think she was making the point that like using ethical non-monogamy sort of implies that non-monogamy is unethical. Mm -hmm. So we need to like, you mm -hmm. know, put that around it. So I, I switched to consensual. I've, I use CNM a lot if I am kind of giving somebody a lesson in the overview. But no, I think, I think labels and terms are helpful if they help you feel like you can identify yourself further and help you feel seen and understood. But then they can also really box you in. And so I think it's only helpful as long as it's serving you. And that if you sort of find that something else is going to feel better or fit better, to always be open to changing it and exploring what these words mean for you. And another thing that I like about that is when you're meeting new people, like sort of asking, I feel like I heard you guys talk about this, actually. If someone's like, oh, okay, I'm open, but I'm not polyamorous. Great. Well, what does Explain yourself open <laughs> versus poly yeah, exactly. mean to you? Because, yeah, it can be different for everybody. And so I've, I've gotten into the habit of asking people that or even sharing that for myself. And um, I think that's very helpful because, yeah, we could be, I can be saying I'm in an open relationship and you could be saying you're in an open relationship and we have very different relationship dynamics. So For sure. I think it's always important to just be present to like the person that you're speaking to also or with. And this this question talking about the Wikipedia article on monogamy is such a good example of that, where someone says I'm monogamous and someone else says I'm monogamous. What does that mean? That's not even the same thing either, right? There's there's a lot of variation within that. And even if you took these subcategories, like I'm socially monogamous, it's like, well, what does that really mean, though? Does that just mean you go on dates with this person, but you still sleep with other people? Or does this just mean that you live together, but you're not like all of this? There's still a lot of questions and negotiation to be had to really understand it. And this whole conversation keeps making me think about Martha Cowpey in our episode 414 just recently, where she said, I think of a label as something that you choose for yourself to give other people a shorthand to make assumptions about you that you can tolerate. And I'm just like, I love that because it it does get to the heart of why we have multiple words for the same things in most languages, right? That we get to add some nuance to it, some context. And depending who we're talking to, we might use different ones because the whole point of it is just to help you understand me a little bit faster. And if I'm using a label that I'm like, it's not totally accurate, but it gets you 90% of the way there, sure, I'll give you that one. And then we can clarify from there. I think these days I've been defaulting more and more and more to just saying non-monogamous, even though I think mm -hmm. my practice is probably polyamorous, but I don't add the consensual. I don't add the ethical. I think for a couple of reasons. One of them, I'm tired of saying words. And so the fewer words <laughs> I can say... How dare I have to speak? The better. The second one... I, yeah, I'm exhausted. The second one, I don't mind speaking of the, you know, what you can tolerate, the assumptions that you can tolerate, right? Like, I don't mind there being maybe a little bit of mystery there. So it's like, if I say non-monogamous and someone thinks, oh, she goes to orgies all the time, or maybe she's, she's in a live-in triad, or maybe she's cheating and for some reason very proudly identifying that way, I like, I can tolerate that ambiguity, I think. You know, as much as being misunderstood as a non-monogamous person can be so draining and so frustrating. I've also gotten very experienced at being misunderstood and tolerating misunderstandings. And so I'm kind of like, if people really want to know and really want me to clarify, I will. And if they don't really want to know, like they can have their story about me. And then I get to say fewer words. 
So this was fantastic. Thank you to all of you who submitted questions. We'll be doing another listener Q&A episode probably in a few weeks' time or months' time or so. In the meantime, Jessica, thank you so much for joining us, for helping us answer these questions. Where can people find more of you and your work? Yeah. Well, thank you so much for having me. This was a blast. I have, you know, I've been wanting to come on your show for a long time. Long time listener. First time guester. First time time guester. Yeah. So thank you. And people can find more at openlatepodcast.com. And I hang out on Instagram at openlatethepodcast. You have a very nice Instagram. I'm jealous of it. (laughs) <laughs> thank you i have a really great designer oh lovely nice. yeah well oh, done. my best friend yeah speaking of uh, instagram if you go check out mm-hmm. our instagram stories for this week we are going to be asking what do you call your type of relationship how many words do you use when you're describing your relationship <laughs> label we want to know also the best place to share your thoughts on this episode with other listeners is in our episode discussion channel in our discord server or you can also post about it in our private facebook group you can get access to these groups and join our exclusive community by going to patreon.com slash multiamory in addition you can share with us publicly on twitter facebook or instagram multiamory is created and produced by jace lindgren emily matlack and me dedeker winston Our production assistants are Rachel Shenowark and Carson Collins. Our theme song is Forms I Know I Did by Josh and Anand from the Fractal Cave EP. The full transcript is available on this episode's page on multiamory.com. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.